Welcome to Oncology Today. Key presentations on gynecologic cancers from the 2021 American Society of Clinical Oncology Annual Meeting. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. For this program, I met with Dr. Kathleen Moore from the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center in Oklahoma City. And in addition to this audio program, there's also a video component with Katie's presentation. To begin, Dr. Moore reviewed clinical trial data on the role of immune checkpoint inhibitors in the management of ovarian cancer. So let's start out talking a little bit about what happened at ASCO as it relates to ovary. And I'm going to be a little selective, like I said, because you were very comprehensive in your talk. So let's start out with the issue of immunotherapy of ovarian cancer, which has been pretty resistant up to now in terms of seeing benefits. We did see one trial. I was curious what your thoughts are in terms of the use of neoadjuvant immunotherapy that's being explored in a bunch of other tumors, including lung cancer. Can you talk about where we came from in terms of IOs and immunotherapy and what this study showed? Sure, I'm happy to. I mean, the truth of how IO, and specifically immune checkpoint inhibitor, that's what we're talking about, made it into frontline is really a story of extrapolation from other tumor sites. We did have data in recurrent ovarian cancer. We had Panos Constantinopoulos' work, which was Topacio. We have Joyce Liu's work, Junmin Lee's work, lots of these kind of PARP-IO combinations in a recurrent setting that had a signal, a modest signal. I don't think any of them would say it was this overwhelming signal, but we did have these studies that showed in a platinum-resistant population there was a signal and then from there, there was so much data in breast and lung that the combination with chemotherapy was incredibly effective. And this idea of combining it with an antiangiogenic to improve T cell trafficking is real in several tumors. We extrapolated that into ovary and so kind of launched into the front line with Imagine 50 with was a Tezo and Bev. And then, of course, Javelin was just a Velumab. And both were negative. And why they were negative, I think, is a paper in and of itself. We really thought with Imagine that we would win because we did have stratification by PDL1 and we felt like we had the right assay. And if we missed an ITT, would hit in PDL1 positivity. And we were wrong. It was a little better, but it wasn't enough. So I think message one is we don't know if there is a role at all for immune checkpoint inhibitors in ovary. It just may not be a disease site that at least now with current combinations, lends itself to immune checkpoint inhibitor efficacy. So that's number one. We just may have to accept that or not. Number two is, if it is, we just don't know what the biomarkers are yet. It's certainly not pdl one positive like lung or any of the other studies. We've seen Ursula Machelonis' work with CPS positivity greater than 10, giving us a signal that that may be the group. In Imagine 50, there was an exploratory analysis that it was the immune cells greater than 5%. But those are all exploratory analyses and haven't been validated, and it may have nothing to do with PDL1 at all. So we don't have a biomarker. And I think the third kind of potential is that we may just not understand the best combinations yet. But we're starting to do some studies with adoptive T cell therapies. There were some at ASCO very early, and then in combinations with PD1. And that may be very promising, but I think we just have to go back to the drawing board a little bit because these just haven't been wildly positive studies, disappointingly. So can you talk about this Neo-Pembro study that was presented at ASCO, combining pembrolizumab with chemo, plus or minus BEV? 
Yeah, this was presented by Dr. Ray Cucard on behalf of the Genico Group out of France. And so this is a randomized phase two. And they took patient women who were dispositioned to neoadjuvant chemotherapy with paclitaxel and carboplatin and gave them that or that plus pembrolizumab. And the primary endpoint was to look at whether or not the rate of complete resection at interval side reduction was improved with the addition of pembrolizumab. And so that was the primary endpoint and how it was powered. And the answer to that was no. It was 70 versus 73% complete response rates. Now, she did say the rate of complete response amongst the control arm was much higher than what their historical benchmarks had been. And so this is maybe some due to better performance or overperformance of the control group, but also it just is very consistent with everything else. And so I wasn't surprised that it didn't help because we didn't see any benefit. There was a subset of patients who received neoadjuvant chemotherapy in Imagine 50 as well, and there was no signal amongst that group that there was any benefit either. Dr. Ray Hukard said, of course, was running and enrolled long before our study resulted. So it was one of those parallel studies that needs to be reported, but it's not surprising that it's negative given everything else that we've seen. So let's talk a little bit again, more from a macro perspective about another important critical topic in ovarian cancer, which of course is the use of PARP inhibitors. Maybe we can break it up a little bit in terms of data presented in the upfront versus recurrent setting. In terms of upfront treatment, one of the things that you commented on was the update of the Paola study Can you remind the audience what the Paola study looked at and comment on what they presented? Sure. So Paola 1 was a randomized phase 3 study. It was run, again, by Dr. Ray Cucard out of France, but had many European sites. And it was kind of a response to SOLO 1, actually, because if you recall SOLO 1, we did not allow bevacizumab in the front line. You couldn't have bevacizumab with your chemotherapy. And in many parts of the world, bevacizumab in front line is the standard of care. And so Paula One was an investigator-initiated trial power to the investigators that said, well, we want to use bevacizumab and bevacizumab maintenance versus both in an all-comer population. And of course, this was also designed before the results of Solo One were known. You would never have randomized a woman with BRCA to not get a PARP. So you have to say that, that we've learned. But anyway, it was all-comers, high-grade, serous or endometrioid, paclitaxel, carboplatin, bevacizumab, complete or partial response, and then randomized to bevacizumab or bevacizumab olaparib and stratified by BRCA. And the primary endpoint was progression-free survival in the entire population, which was positive. That was the primary endpoint. The exploratory endpoints looked at BRCA, BRCA wild-type HRD, and then homologous recombination proficient. And that's where you saw the differences with a very significant improvement in progression-free survival, both in BRCA, but also HRD, BRCA wild type. That hazard ratio is 0.43 versus BEV. Very striking. Hypothesis generating, but very striking. But then no difference in the homologous recombination proficient group, which led to some of the interesting indications globally, excluding that population from the combination. But that was the initial presentation of Paola in the initial publication. So anything else in the upfront setting in terms of PARP from ASCO that you were talking about? No, I think they just updated Paola at ASCO this year, particularly in the homologous recombination deficient group, which includes BRCA. So they gave an update and they broke it out by residual disease and stage and looked at progression-free survival too in that population and just continued to reinforce 
the strength of the data for utilization of PARP, in this case, PARP plus BEV, in that molecularly selected population. All those endpoints were overwhelmingly positive without any real difference between clinical prognostic groups. How do you decide whether or not to use BEV plus a PARP inhibitor, the Paolo strategy, particularly in BRCA versus, let's say, HR deficient? That's the right question. Right now, based on the data, I think you have to think about them very similar. You make your decision for bevacizumab use based on clinical factors or your own belief system. A standard of care in the United States, not the standard of care. So some people never use it. Some people use it in every patient. Some people use it just in those patients with ascites or undergoing neoadjuvant chemotherapy, kind of that quote unquote higher risk group. So you make your decision for bevacizumab very early on, sometimes cycle one or cycle two, while you're getting that genetic and molecular testing back. And then if they have a BRCA-associated cancer or are BRCA wild type but have HRD, you can layer on the PARP inhibitor if you've started bevacizumab. And if you haven't started bevacizumab, the appropriate thing is to use a PARP inhibitor there. And that's what the data would support at this time. The missing arm of Paula, as we all know, is PARP alone. And so we don't really know if you have to have bevacizumab in a BRCA-associated cancer. The exploratory analysis that Dr. Vergote did comparing solo to Paula would suggest that bevacizumab, the benefit is additive and not synergistic. So you feel good about adding it, but you shouldn't feel bad if you don't. I think the bigger question is in, and this is the study I would love hopefully to run is in BRCA wild type homologous recombination deficient, respond to chemo and you get bevacizumab olaparib versus olaparib. Because I do wonder if there's synergy in that population based on the data in the platinum sensitive population that Joyce Liu has presented with olaparib sidirinib and Mansur Mirza has presented with bevacizumab and niraparib. In a BRCA wild type population, platinum sensitive, it looks synergistic. So I'm wondering about that in the front line, but I can't prove it. So until you can prove it, I think you have to think about them in the same way. But I am interested in that question because it would change my practice. If I knew they were synergistic, I would be adding it in as soon as I knew you had HRD. I'd be adding it. So I think we got to know the answer to that question because it may be very important to our patients. But at this point, we don't. We need a study. So I guess the problem is there was no PARP alone arm in payola. That's the problem. That's the problem. Yep, that's the problem. It just, the results look so good, though. It's tempting to use it. People just use it based on whatever, ascites and all is one thing, but the idea of using it to really synergize with PARP is a different story. Right. We don't have data. We can't prove that yet in the front line. So, you, I mean, I would never stand here and say, you must use that because that's not what the data tells us yet. But I have that question in my brain. I'd like to know the answer. So there were some data presented in the recurrent setting in terms of PARP and ovarian cancer. Can you kind of provide an overview for kind of some of the things that were presented and from your point of view, some of the things that stood out in your mind that you reviewed in the talk? I thought the one thing that was interesting was the niraparib data that was presented, or was that from Prima based on BRCA? It had Prima, Nora, and Nova. So it was combined. Right. So you're right. thinking correctly. So that was a combined analysis of all BRCA-associated cancers that were treated either on Prima, which was frontline, or Nova, 
which was platinum sensitive recurrence. And then Nora is a Chinese study that's platinum sensitive recurrence. So very important. It's a global approval. So we have to actually know how it acts globally. So really was just looking at a bigger group of women with BRCA associated cancers in different settings and how they benefited from Norepirib versus placebo. And really the take-home is not surprising. It just gives you a bigger group of patients to look at that the hazard ratios in all setting were just hugely in favor of use of a PARP. You were talking about hazard ratios all less than 0.4 in both BRCA1 and BRCA2, just really kind of screaming in favor of use of PARP inhibitors in that group. So it was a nice kind of analysis just continuing to drive home the importance of testing There was another abstract at ASCO, which was embarrassing in the U.S. that were still just so subpar with testing women as of 2018, which is not that long ago. We're still not getting all of our patients tested, which is just maddening because it's so important in terms of making sure they get the right therapies at the right time. We don't have any excuse not to be sending it. So this just continues to drive home that you've got to test. You have to know this data because these treatments are transformational. And we have to get our patients access to them. Some parts of the globe, you can't access a PARP unless you're BRCA. So unless you know, they can't get it. So the other issue that was touched on and you kind of went through in your talk was the question of in the recurrent setting, we've had this model of using platinum, getting a response or stable disease, and then using a PARP inhibitor in that situation But also the question has come up, do you need the chemo, particularly in patients with BRCA mutations? Can you talk about what we've learned about that, including what came up at ASCO in that regard? This still remains, I think, in my mind, a big question. It's just an instance of where the standard of care has changed while the trials were ongoing, so you end with more questions than you had. But we have a lot of data in every PARP inhibitor, kind of single-arm phase two data showing very respectable response rates in patients with BRCA-associated cancers with good duration, and that led to those accelerated approvals. And now we actually have randomized data, three studies, comparing PARP or PARP combinations to chemo. But all the studies have a little caveat that just makes it a little bit frustrating. So we had SOLO3, which is only BRCA-associated cancers, platinum-sensitive, very heavily pretreated. Like over half of those women had four lines or more when they came on. And it randomized to olaparib or a monotherapy chemo, not including platinum in a platinum-sensitive population. And the response rates of both groups were really, really high. It was like 70% versus like 50%. So really, really high response rates and good durability. But you kind of go, well, that's great, but you didn't have platinum. So that's the question mark with that study. And then you had NRG GYO4 presented by Dr. Liu. That paper is about to come out. That was all comers, platinum sensitive, high grade serous or high grade endometrioid, randomized first platinum sensitive, so not heavily pretreated, randomized to olaparib, olaparib sidirinib, or chemo. But what happened during that study is that all of the approvals for PARP maintenance in the platinum sensitive space started to occur but the patients weren't allowed to get them. So you had patients crossing over and patients coming off the study because they wanted to get a PARP. And so that compromised some of the interpretation. But then even so, it's hard to interpret the results because you're comparing it to chemo without a maintenance. It didn't show any difference. It wasn't superior to chemo, but the chemo wasn't followed by PARP. And so that's the question mark with that study. How do you interpret that? 
And then Arial 4 was the last one. And we saw an important update on Arial 4 at ASCO. So Arial 4 was not Solo 3 just through Capra, but it's a different study. It was all BRCA-associated cancers, but could be platinum-resistant or platinum-sensitive. If they're platinum-resistant, they were randomized to brucaparib or weekly paclitaxel. If they were any bit platinum-sensitive, either intermediate, 6 to 12 months, or greater than 12 months, they're randomized to brucaparib or a platinum-containing agent. So it removes that question of, should you have gotten a platinum? But they still didn't get a maintenance after the platinum. So the results are somewhat confusing to me how to interpret what's best for my patient, it certainly didn't look worse than chemo in the intermediate platinum sensitivity, which is at six to 12 months. The rucaparib actually looked much better than chemo, but it's a subset analysis, but I'm interested in that subgroup. But I think the big question is if you put rucaparib alone or olaparib alone or niraparib alone up versus chemo followed by PARP, what would that look like? And that we've never answered either from a progression-free survival, or maybe more importantly, a quality of life standpoint. If there's no difference between the two, but patients feel worlds better not getting chemo, that would change my practice. But until I know one of those two things, it's hard for me to say they're equivalent. But I don't think it's wrong to use. And I just think you have to counsel patients as to what we do and don't know Patients are very bright and they like to understand what we don't know. And then they make decisions based on what sounds true to them. And a lot of patients just don't want chemo and you can counsel them as to what the expectations are. And I think that's really powerful. So that was the update from ASCO on Arial 4 was really breaking out those subgroups of platinum resistant versus platinum sensitive, which was very important data to get. So you covered a number of issues related to recurrence, including the issue of recurrence after primary PARP maintenance and the issues of the mechanisms of resistance. But rather than going through all the details of the new strategies to deal with that, I really like the slide that you put together focused on kind of how to think through therapy from a more macro perspective, breaking out the BRCA and RAD51 as one group the BRCA type with HRD and the HRP in terms of the question of cure, recurrence after prior PARP, recurrence during PARP. Can you kind of go through those variations and where we are today clinically and where we might be in a couple of years? Sure. I think we're thinking about those right now is really the high level answer because we don't know yet. We're just starting to get some granularity around some of these issues. So Hopefully, by using PARP in the front line, we're going to cure some more women. That's my hope. And so this recurring issue will not be their problem. Unfortunately, we're going to have women recur. And then the question is going to be, how have we changed their tumor or have we changed their tumor at all with treatment with platinum followed by a PARP? And does the fact that they progress during a PARP, during six months of PARP, 12 months of PARP, 18 months of PARP, does that matter? or after a PARP, does that matter in terms of what their tumor looks like now? And so we're just starting to develop the studies that are going to look at that and answer that question, but we just don't know the answers yet. There was a really fascinating paper that came out relatively recently looking at reversion mutations and the very different mechanisms that reversion mutations develop, either because of exposure to platinum or exposure to PARP inhibitors and the different mechanisms in play that fix those BRCA mutations and then cause the reversions. 
what pressures cause those and can we reverse them, I think is the next kind of line of therapy. So when I think about the future, we're already doing the right things. We have Stephanie LaRue, who ran the Evolve study that had pre-treatment biopsies on patients whose tumors have progressed on a PARP. We learned a ton from that study. We learned how complex the problem is. And we learned a lot about the evolution of tumors. One thing that was very striking from her data, and one thing we believe is that patients that have BRCA mutations don't have CCN1 amplifications. That's true at baseline. That's not true later. They acquire them. And so if we're developing these cyclone E targeted therapies like we won or ATR, we may have to do pre-treatment biopsies to figure out who's acquired that over time because it is an acquired molecular change. That's one thing. Shannon Weston has extensive translational work from effort that will be presented probably in an upcoming meeting. And that will be incredibly important to understanding even more what happened with those women. And of course, Capri and others. So the women that are agreeing to participate in these studies and have biopsies ahead of therapy are absolutely the champions right now, because without them being willing to undergo these biopsies so we can understand what's present before they get these novel therapies, we're just operating in the dark. It's just clearer and clearer. You just can't use archival tissue for everything when you're studying these novel therapies. So we're really just at the tip of the iceberg, I think, for understanding these resistance mechanisms and how to individualize it to patients. It's far more complex than I think I might have guessed. So that's one group. And there's probably gonna be a lot of groups within there. And then the second big group is this 40% of women who at baseline are homologous recombination proficient. And why are they proficient? It's not one thing. And how do we address that? It's not another PARP or PARP plus bevacizumab. It's going to be something completely different. It may be adoptive T-cell therapy. It may be something we haven't thought of yet. But really, we've all of a sudden identified them at the beginning. We'd never had in the past. So now I get a biopsy where I send it off and I find out they're homologous recombination proficient. And I'm real sad and I'm real worried about them. And I'm thinking I'm going to change what I'm going to do. And we just don't have the right tools yet. But we're really doing good work right now. Science-directed studies. We're trying to move things fast and really figure out smart, small studies to really answer questions and then move things into the big studies that are going to get drugs available for our patients. But it's exciting, but complicated. So final topic about ovarian cancer is mervituximab. And we've been seeing some interesting data on MERV plus bevacizumab. We saw some more from Dr. O'Malley at ASCO. Can you kind of bring us up to date on that? Yes. So Dr. O'Malley presented part of what's called Forward 2. So Forward 2 was a series of pretty large cohorts looking at combinations with mervituximab. And just to remind the audience, mervituximab is an antibody drug conjugate that targets folate receptor alpha positive cells. And then it has a payload, a microtubule toxin on its tail that's called DM4. And you all are familiar with antibody conjugates. And so as monotherapy, it's in its confirmatory phase three study right now known as Mirasol. And so we're working really hard to get that done so we can get this really active drug approved. In the meantime, we've continued to work on the combinations. We know it's an active drug. And forward two amongst the combinations had a bevacizumab plus mervituximab arm. And it was open to anyone, regardless of platinum resistance or platinum sensitivity. If your patient was platinum sensitive, but you didn't think platinum was an appropriate asset for them, they could come on this study. And so I love that because it actually is a study that reflects 
what we actually see in the clinic. And that's so important for our patients. I can't tell you how often that I'm frustrated because I have somebody who was platinum sensitive and got eight cycles of carbopegylid liposomal doxorubicin, didn't really respond ever, but it didn't grow. And then they were on bevacizumab for eight months and finally it grows. And she's technically platinum sensitive. She's not platinum sensitive. She didn't respond to platinum, but I'm still forced to put her on platinum and prove that she progresses even though she didn't respond to her last slide. This happens all the time. And so we know these patients are not platinum sensitive. And this allowed us to put them on with consent, Merbituximab and Bev. And it gave the response rates, which are amazing. So in a platinum resistant population, which mirrored Aurelia in a lot of ways, it was mostly one to two priors. So really the Aurelia kind of space we had a response rate that was 60% resistant and 70% for a sensitive. And cross-trial comparisons are very biased, but you kind of get a benchmark. And so those compare very favorably to me in my brain when I think about putting someone on an Aurelia-type regimen or I think about putting someone on chemo plus bevacizumab. And it was very safe and there were no new overlapping toxicities. It was just the things that we know about bevacizumab and merbituximab that are very mitigatable, if that's a word. So I'm pretty excited about it because I'm very confident that we're going to get merbituximab approved. It's an asset that works. And then with this data and the number of patients who've received bevacizumab combinations across many cohorts, I'm hopeful that the NCCN will look at that and say, well, this could be used instead of paclitaxel in an Aurelia regimen or in another line of therapy if you don't feel like it's appropriate to use paclitaxel because I'd want to move this up and use it in that kind of regimen instead of paclitaxel. So it was very important data. It's very striking response rates, durable, and I think just sets us up well for once the drug is approved. We just have to get the trials done so we can get it approved. Let's talk now about cervical cancer. And I guess one thing I'm really curious about is after ASCO, we saw a press release about the Keynote 826 trial combining chemo plus pembrolizumab as first-line therapy of metastatic cervical cancer. I guess we're going to be seeing that data sometime in the near future. I don't know, ESMO, maybe. Do you know, incidentally, when it's going to be presented? I do not know. It has not been announced in the public domain to my understanding. Anyhow, I guess you could say much anticipated. I think there are other trials with the same strategy, but as far as I know, this is the first one I think that's reported. So super exciting. Any thoughts about that? Maybe you can just comment on the design. I guess this is with or without Bev. Right. So this is frontline metastatic. So patients could either be stage four or they had received chemo RT and now they've recurred. So they had not received systemic therapy for metastatic disease. So it's platinum taxane with or without bevacizumab. The question is pembrolizumab. So with or without Bev, as indicated, some patients, you can't use it because it's contraindicated. And then they added pembrolizumab versus not. And the press release would say that the primary endpoint was positive. And so actually all secondary endpoints as well. And so we're very excited to see how positive is positive. That we don't know yet. They have not shared any hazard ratios or given us a hint. So we don't know. We're looking forward to seeing the results. You don't put a press release out unless it's real. And so we anticipate that this will likely change the standard of care in the front line for metastatic disease very quickly. And that will really change the landscape really for women with cervical cancer. Because right now we have pembrolizumab approved in the second line. And then, of course, semiplumab, the Empower study, 
just was resulted in that same line of therapy. But now we're going to move IO up front. What are you going to do in that next line of therapy for those in whom it's not curative, which unfortunately is going to be a lot of the women? I was going to say, fortunately, we have ongoing studies in that space. So we are ready to fill it with great assets. The other space that seems like it would be interesting, kind of looking over your shoulder at lung cancer, where they use consolidation dervalumab after chemo radiation therapy, is looking at IO in that situation. I know there was a trial at ASCO looking at chemo, like adjuvant chemo after chemo radiation that was negative. Right. But what about the concept of using consolidation IO like they use dervalumab in lung cancer? Is that being studied? Do you think that's going to be a promising strategy? It's definitely being studied. There are two studies, two big phase threes. One is called the CALA study that was led by Dr. Bradley Monk. And that is completed and is maturing. Now that's local regionally advanced disease, cisplatin radiation, and then followed with or without dervalumab. So it'll take a while to result there because the event rates are going to come slower, mercifully. So we'll see. That's not kind of around the corner to report, but it is done. And then there's also the same idea with consolidation, pembrolizumab, and that is still accruing. It's an international study. So there's two studies. One will result before the other, but you always need two studies to confirm anything. So there are two studies, and we will have the answer here. And I really do think that if we can improve upon disease control or disease cure with these patients with local regionally advanced disease, it's going to be with immune therapy. We have really tried with chemotherapy after, before, tirpazamine, adding a third chemo, so many trials to improve overall survival in this group using non-IO agents. And it's just a graveyard of negative well-validated, scientifically exceptional studies, but they are negative. So IO, I think, makes the most sense. This is a virally driven cancer. It makes the most sense. It's going to work here. And my antennas are up for Cala being positive. So we will see. I don't have any insider information. It is still maturing. But we're just going to have to wait and see what that study shows. But it's done. So I think it's just going to take some time. You mentioned the viral etiology. I think a lot of people are kind of disappointed with the pembrolizumab, but that was only like 100 patients. And the semiplomad data, I think, got people a lot more excited, and it's a lot more patient, so kind of more granular. The other thing I was curious about, and you mentioned in your review talk, was where things are with tesodomab, because we saw, I thought it was really exciting data. I think it was the asthma before last, so it's more than a year. I thought it was going to get approved, but in any event, there was a trial in progress at ASCO presented by Dr. Vergoat, I guess, comparing it to investigator choice of chemotherapy. I don't know. Are we going to need to wait for that trial in order to use it? Would you like to be using it now? Yes, I definitely want it in my armamentarium. And in the U.S., we'll have to wait and see. It is the accelerated approval application based on the single arm phase two data that you referenced is before the FDA. We should hear that in October. So we're waiting. We're all really anxiously waiting for that decision. And I hope it's positive because I would like this for my patients, especially I'm going to be moving IO in the front line. I'm still going to have women who are recurring. And the good thing about the GOG240, which was adding bevacizumab, is that you transformed the natural history a little bit for these women. Whereas in the past, when you just use chemotherapy, when they progressed, they would die. There wasn't second line cervical cancer treatment. Nothing worked. And these young women would die. When we added bevacizumab, we got such better responses. The overall survival improved and patients came off that therapy with progression. 
able to get another line of therapy. And so we incrementally pushed things out a little bit for them. We did better. And so the addition of pembrolizumab, even if you don't get a response, if you stabilize disease for a period of time, you do a little bit better. But I'm moving that to the front line now. And so I anticipate that I'm going to have women progressing much later, I hope. But they're going to be like, well, I feel good. Like, what are you going to give me? And I need stuff. And so tezotimab has a 25 or 27% response rate in this population. It's an antibody-drug conjugate targeting tissue factor, which is highly overexpressed in cervical cancer. You don't even have to test for it. You don't have to select. It's just positive. So if my patients have already seen an IO, I really want this drug available for them. The other thing about tezotimab versus pembrolizumab, and it's very hard to compare them, say you had both available in a second-line setting, tezotimab time to onset is much quicker. And so if I have someone that's really symptomatic from their disease, pembrolizumab I think is a great drug. And I think smiplumab is a great drug. They are. There's no but. They just take a little bit of time to kick in and to know that they're working. And so if I have someone that's having like a visceral crisis or pain, I need to use something that's going to work fast. Sometimes I'd like to make those decisions and I don't have that drug right now. No chemo is going to work. I don't have that drug. And tezotimab does have that quicker onset. So I definitely want this available for my patients. I think it's incredibly important. And like everybody, I'm waiting to see the decision in October. Irrespective, we have Dr. Virgoat presented the trials in progress, which is the big phase three that I believe will ultimately lead to its approval eventually, but that will be several more years than perhaps we would want. So it's a very important study for us to get done, international trial. If it does get approved, what do you anticipate in terms of tolerability? There have been these issues with the eyes and all. It sounds like when I talk to Dr. Vergote, he talks about these cold packs being very effective. Globally, how do you expect it to be tolerated? I always reflect everything back to Mervituximab, which also is eye toxicity, although it's different. Mervituximab right. is not conjunctivitis, and we have to use the eye drops and all the things. But we had those same worries when we launched Forward One, and we don't have them now with Mirasol because we proved with Forward One that oncologists are very capable of working with ophthalmologists and helping their patients mitigate eye toxicity to a great extent. So I felt like I was very worried going into that global study and we did fantastic because patients want access to the drug and providers are committed to doing what it takes to mitigate toxicities and we did it. And now it's still something we deal with, but it's not like rate limiting at all. And I think we'll get to the same place with tezotumab. It's just going to be right now, cervix cancer is far less common than ovarian cancer. And so the familiarity with it is going to be less. There's not going to be like, oh, this is our routine cold pack. Like every time you do it, it's probably going to be a new day initially because it's just a smaller population. But I've seen, I have to say, I have seen some of the education materials that are being developed for sites and for infusion centers and for patients to help them with prevention of this toxicity. And I've been very impressed. Like the rollout is ready to make this feasible for sites and patients. So I think with time and experience, it's going to be very doable. I think initially we're going to have a learning curve, but we're smart people and we can learn and our patients deserve the effort. And they're willing to do a lot of things to get access to a drug that might work. So we have to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're going to participate. And I think they will. Let's finish out talking about endometrial cancer. And of course, there, there's huge interest and excitement about checkpoint inhibitors. 
Before we talk about data from ASCO, in your talk, you went through subsets within MSI high disease, which I had not heard about before. Can you kind of explain that again? Yeah. I mean, we haven't thought about this yet, but I think it may be an interesting thought experiment, but clinically irrelevant. That's what we have to figure out. But we categorize tumors right now as microsatellite stable or microsatellite high. And if they're microsatellite high or mismatch repair deficient, we say, okay, well, you're going to do fine with pembrolizumab or now dostarlimab. Those are your two options for monotherapy treatment. And it's true, the response rates are quite high. And the question is raised in this relatively small but interesting study is, does it matter the mechanism by which you are mismatch repair deficient? Meaning if you have Lynch syndrome or Lynch-like syndrome, where you have loss of a protein, like mutational loss of a protein, or you have the more common, which is sporadic, like it's not linked to Lynch at all, and you just have methylation of MLH1, you're still mismatch repair deficient. You still qualify for IO, but do you respond the same to it? And at least based on this small study, the answer is no. If you're Lynch-like, your response rate's 100%. And if you're sporadic, it was like 40%, which is still really high overall. But I think it's really fascinating And I'm very interested in validating that. We certainly should have the numbers of patients treated with monotherapy IO for whom we can do this analysis and see if it's real. Because if it's real and you have a Lynch-like and you have a 100% response rate that's very durable, then I just want to give you pembrolizumab or dostarlimab and leave you alone. And hopefully we don't have any IO toxicity, but I want to do that. But if you're 40%, then I definitely want to get you an IO, but there's so many interesting assets that seem to be synergistic in an MSI high setting, at least so far, with IO that it may make sense to use two things. I'm not talking about chemo, like other assets, to really try and potentiate the likelihood of a more robust response and a more durable response and try and keep patients forever off chemo. So if that's real and we can target it, which I think we probably can, then I think that's a really important thing to parse out. So I was intrigued by that. It was definitely hypothesis generating only, but if that's real, it's very important to me and to our patients. So I got an idea of something you can add to Pembro, lenvatinib. And I was going to ask you, what do you do when you give Pembro or dostarlimab to an MSI high patient and they don't respond or they respond and they progress, do you ever add in lenvatinib? No, I haven't done that actually. I'm not opposed to it though. I'm not opposed to doing that. I've definitely heard of people doing that. We are fortunate here to have so many clinical trials in the post-IO setting that I feel like I have very good options for those patients that aren't me guessing at something. But if I didn't have that, I might try it. I think the question is, Number one, the benefit is them together. And we actually talk about this because there's so much concern about the toxicity. You see a lot of providers like starting at really low levels of lenvatinib instead of the starting dose. And we actually talk about worry about that, that you need that big starting dose to really initiate the synergy. And then you dose modify based on the AEs, but not in anticipation of AEs. And I don't know the right answer there yet. And I'm not being critical, but I am saying we talk about that as a worry And so I don't know that I can explain why if someone is MSI high and progressing on a monotherapy IO on Pembro in this case, why Limvatinib would rescue that once you've formed resistance. So I don't know. I can't 
make that make sense in my brain, but I'm not saying I wouldn't try it if I didn't have another option. So you mentioned dostarlimab, as you said, now approved MSI high, and there were data, further data presented at ASCO on that. Can you comment on what they presented? And at this point, indirectly, whether there seems to be any difference, either benefit, tolerability, administration, I think you can give it every six weeks in terms of dostarlimab versus Pembro for MSI high disease. Yeah, at ASCO, they like combined two cohorts from what's called the Garnet study. The Garnet study had many cohorts and many different disease sites looking at dostarlimab. And so they presented two cohorts, A and F, I think. So there's some colorectal patients in that poster if you're interested, but they had combined endometrial data. So it's just a bigger data set of the patients with MSI high endometrial cancer with a response rate of 45%, which is close to what they have previously presented. It's just a more precise estimate of that response rate at a tighter confidence interval. So it gives us a better and more confirmed estimate of response. And again, the same really well-tolerated safety profile. So it's just like many things, more patient data just to really confirm the results as presented thus far. So you also comment in your talk on a poster looking at quality of life with lenvatinib, Pembro, and all the challenges of trying to get a quantitative assessment of quality of life. And I guess the poster concluded there wasn't much of a difference in quality of life, but I'm just kind of curious about your own clinical experience because quality of life is both side effects of the drugs and relief from cancer symptoms. Right. And we know that a lot of these people are going to respond. And from that point of view, their quality of life gets better. So what we really want to know is how much problems is it to take therapy, particularly in the hands of people kind of had some experience with it. You talked about the dosing challenges. Everybody has their own prescription. But was there anything in the poster that you learned from? And more importantly, what is your overall take? You've had a lot of patients go through this therapy looking back on it. I mean, how does it compare to chemo, for example? Yeah, so layered question. Poster was very important. We've been waiting to see this data for a while. And quality of life data is incredibly important to be built into studies. And this was very well done. 100% no criticisms. Just the challenge with interpreting quality of life data is you ask a set of questions on a specific day. And just as you said, if someone had a great response and most patients on the study responded to LENPEM. And so if you ask about, I can't remember what they asked about, if you ask about abdominal pain or relief of pain or release of shortness of breath or whatever, they're really like, oh yeah, it's much better. So depending on what you ask for, it kind of depends on what you get. So it's the difference between the patient-reported outcomes and then what we report as toxicities. The provider assessed toxicities. And you'd think that they really overlap, but they just don't. So you see all these reported toxicities of 80% fatigue and 60% nausea, and then there's no difference in quality of life. Like it doesn't quite jive, but really they're two separate tools. So it's just one of the limitations of patient-reported data at a certain time point, every six weeks or whatever, there's places like my friend Bill Tu and his group at Memorial have piloted these mobile health apps where patients report every day how they're feeling. And then you get like continuous data and it's very robust. But as a clinician, you could imagine how overwhelming that would be to get a ping every day that you're a patient at grade three fatigue. Like you would just be like, stop the madness. So it's a challenge. But I think this is important data and I'm very interested to see the paper on this. I think LENPEM is very difficult to give. I'm not going to lie. I'm very 
careful with patient selection. My office, and I have five partners who are all very good. We have a set standard. We have a clinical pharmacist who helps us. We're very blessed. They get phone calls five days in. We are checking on them weekly. We are bird dogging their labs. And at the first sign of anything, we are bringing them in for an assessment, holds, and dose modifications. So it's a very intense lead up for the first two months, I think, on LENPEM until you get them on the right dose. And I have a lot of help to do that in my site because I have a big site. I just think my colleagues who are at smaller sites and don't have the layers of help that I have, I don't know how they can stay on top of all these things and operate and see patients in the clinic. Like I'm in awe of them, truthfully. I'm in awe of them. I have so many layers of fellows, all these people that help me. But we're all over these patients till we get them on the right dose. And I think it's much more difficult than chemo because chemo is just chemo and we know what to expect with paclitaxel. We're used to it. Yeah, yeah. So last thing I want to ask you about is the combination of PARP plus IO in endometrial cancer, something I would not necessarily have thought about. But here's a phase two trial that you commented on your talk of niraparib with or without dostarlamab for recurrent endometrial cancer. Can you comment on what they looked at there and what you think it means? Yeah, this was a nice study. And I appreciate the authors for bringing this forward. This is something I wish Shannon Weston were here because we lead the DOE study, which is frontline chemotherapy with or without IO, with or without PARP. So we're actually very interested in this question of PARP plus minus IO in endometrial cancer. And Dr. Wesson has done a tremendous amount of work looking at markers of response to PARP inhibitor combinations in an endometrial cancer population. And it's very different than what we think about an ovary. It's not just extrapolating HRD. It's not looking for somatic BRCA. It's a different set of molecular, maybe ARID1A, for example. P10 may be important. So we're still learning who, if anyone, should get a PARP. So there's not been a whole lot of work done. Camille Gunderson-Jackson presented at ASCO this year, Rucapra, Bevacizumab in this population. So there's a poster on that with responses only in those with ARID1A. So we're interested in that group, but overall was not super effective. This is another example where it wasn't super effective. So the PARP monotherapy had a response rate of only 4%. And the PARP-IO had a response rate of 14%. And if you recall from the early unselected endometrial studies, IO alone has a response rate of about 14%. So neither signal was particularly interesting from a signal standpoint, but I don't think that this says this is dead in the water. Really, just like ovary, all endometrial cancer used to be in the same study. Now we know that they're so different. And we had two subgroups. Now we have four. And the four are even getting more complicated. So you have the serous subtype and the poly and the microsatellite high and the microsatellite stable beta catenin. There are so many groups of endometrial cancer, and this may be a great therapy for microsatellite stable beta catenin, that group. And we might see a 30% response rate. But in these small studies, you just can miss a signal just because you have a preponderance of the wrong molecular subtype. So I really like it because it gives us a baseline in all comers. It certainly gives you safety data in this population, which we always need. We have a lot of PARP-IO in ovary, but not in endometrial, so this is important. And I think it just has to sit on the back burner while we continue to look at the molecular subgroups, because it may come back up. And I think that's the risk of saying, oh, we did that, and it was negative. Yeah, you did that in all comers. And now we know it makes no sense two years from now. Redo it in this group. So... 
I think TBD on that one. I'm not dismissing it as inactive yet. I think it's just maybe ahead of its time. This concludes our program. Special thanks to Dr. Moore, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Oncology Today.